Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. All right, Zach. All right, Dean. Here we are. Welcome back, everyone. Another episode of A Little More Good. Thanks for tuning back into the show. We appreciate you all being here. Dean, I'd say this was probably the most I've ever smiled during a recording. I think I was like grinning ear to ear. Yeah. The whole time, my face was hurting by the end. Honestly. It's like, why are my cheeks so sore? This uh, this was a very, very fun episode. Felt like, uh, I even said a couple of times throughout it, felt like uh, sitting around the campfire, hearing just incredible stories that just are inspiring and fun and funny and adventurous and adventure-filled. It was truly, uh, truly an amazing episode. Yes. So uh, who, who was telling these uh, legendary epic Mind-blowing tales around the uh, campfire dinner. Right. Well, on uh, on his website, he's called an athlete, coach, race director, and I would add epic storyteller, Gary Robbins. Ooh-wee. Gary Robbins is, uh, if you're unfamiliar with him, he is uh, honestly one, like one legendary human being. Uh, he is an athlete, uh, ultra runner, ultra marathoner. Some of you might be familiar with uh, the Barkley Marathons uh, through the... Netflix documentary that came out uh, a number of years ago now, but has definitely kind of made its rounds and has been pretty popular with the old uh, character Lazarus Lake, who plans this grueling mountain trail race, ultra epic adventure race. If you haven't seen it, it is worth watching the Barkley Marathons on Netflix. But Gary has run that three times and uh, has come close to finishing, never actually completed it, but even just like making it through one loop of this thing is an insane accomplishment. So he is an incredible athlete. Um, many, many other accolades to his name outside of just being known for, for running the Barkley marathons, but, uh, subject of a few really cool YouTube films. We touched on some of them in the, in the doc or in the, in the conversation, we'll link them in the show notes. He is a, a coach for Ridgeline athletics. If you're into like trail running and you want to up your game and a race director for the coast mountain trail series, the Squamish 50, which is an amazing ultra happening uh, literally as we speak. 
Yes. And by the, the time this comes out, it will be it will be completed. It will but be completed. as we record this. It's happening. It is happening this very this very moment. Yeah. And the Diaz Vista trail race, which we know some friends who have done very well in those races as well. So yeah, this is an exciting, exciting conversation. There we go. We go through um, kind of Gary's origins of how he found running yep. and just the adventures in his life, following intuition, saying yes to adventure, saying yes to possibility. Um, like I said, this was a conversation that had me smiling literally the whole from start to finish. Um, so whether you're a runner, an adventurer, or just uh, looking for some more stoke in your life, this is an episode for you. Yeah, you're gonna you're gonna love it if you if you uh, aren't already familiar with Gary, you're gonna love him by the end of this episode. And uh, so grateful for for him making the time to, to chat with us in the busy lead up to to the, all of the the races that he uh, directs and is part of. And so thank you to him for doing all of that work for the running community and for being here with us and sharing these great great stories of of adventure and intrigue. So buckle up. And here, here we go. Here we go. Gary Robbins, everyone. All right, everyone. Welcome back. We're really, really excited to sit down today with uh, local legend. I'm going to still say local. Chilliwack is local. Uh, Gary Robbins, <laughs> amazing ultra runner, um, creator, husband, father, competitor, race director and creator. Yeah, Gary Robbins, we are so glad to uh, have you on the pod with us. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Oh, thanks to ha- thanks for having me. And yeah, Chilliwack is local. It's become even more local through the pandemic. Half of Vancouver lives here now. <laughs> that's that's right. <laughs> it's like it's like someone created some sort of uh, sneaky doc that just like showed what a beautiful place it was. And <laughs> that's right. And people were all of a sudden allowed to work remotely. That's right. Yeah, they didn't obviously watch all the way to the end where the spoiler was like, Chilliwack sucks. Don't come here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. If you don't know, I'm just referring to uh, the Big Chill, a little a little documentary that Gary made. Uh, documenting a run we'll we'll get into that later but um so good to have you with us man thanks for having me guys yeah absolutely honored to be on the podcast and glad we're able to make it happen yeah our um we want to we want to kind of kickstart things with your origins into running but i just wanted to pass on some gratitude first our our first run um kind of seeming through the the kind of the pandemic was uh the survival of the fittest in squamish uh not this uh not this recent one but the one prior to that and it was such an incredible event we had so much fun like the Mm -hmm. energy coming out of you know everyone kind of running solo for so long uh was just so fantastic and it's a run that i'll never forget so i just wanted to pass some gratitude for the incredible events and and the culture and community that you create through these events yeah Oh, that means a lot, actually. Yeah, that's that's my passion. That's that's where my heart is at with everything. And um, it's the 10th anniversary for being a race director and that race for for us as well. It was our first race post well, post pandemic or still, you know, on the back half of the pandemic, I guess, um, in on Labor Day weekend, September of last year. And yeah, the vibe, the energy of just getting to see the community again for the first time in over a year and a half, almost two years was really quite special. Yeah. It was, it was a lot of fun. It was, um, you know, races can be hyped and emotional and all of this, but this, this one just felt like it was ratcheted up even more. So just being that first, that first start line back and yeah, such a good, a good challenge and atmosphere. And, uh, as we're, as we're recording this, I have my survival of the fittest, uh, coast mountain trail beer glass 
full of water today, but uh, <laughs> I, I drink out of it almost every day, and it just reminds me of uh, that great that great time and great run. And yeah, I just uh, nice personal anecdote. I was coming up at the end, and I mean, it was you had to run kind of that steep steep segment back up to the top of Quest University where the start <laughs> finish line was, and you were standing there like cheering everybody on. And I just got to the top of that steep last hill that we had to do to get to the finish line. I was like, ran past you as you're like high-fiving and cheering everyone. I was like, who planned this race? <laughs> it was good. Yeah. And coincidentally, the great thing is that our our latest edition of Survival of the Fittest just happened two weekends ago. Yeah, uh, It's historically a race at the end of May. We were fortunate to get it off in September after missing two editions of it. And, uh, yeah, I, uh, I always situate myself at the top of the last hill before the finish line so I can mock people or cheer people <laughs> or just give them what they need when they're coming up that slope there. Yeah. And uh, it's a ton of fun for me to be out there and, and see everyone just kind of be like, seriously, another hill before the finish line? Like, yeah. come on, you could have put the arch over there somewhere. Um, but, yeah, and then this, uh, this last race uh, a couple of weeks ago, there was one competitor where – she stopped and I thought she was stopping to kind of talk to me for a second. Then I saw her pull out her Strava and start go to press stop. And I went, no, 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 no. The arch is over there. You're not there yet. And there was full panic as she was trying to grab back the second. She had just given away by mistake. <laughs> yeah. Finish the race and then deal with Strava. That's the, that's the lesson yeah, there. For 99%, I say arch all the way through. And I guess I had forgotten for this one person. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awesome. No, so good. And I think it just sheds light on who you are as a person and, and certainly as a race director that you just like, you're so involved, right? You're, you're in there, you're, you're the biggest cheerleader on the course and, uh, yeah, create just some awesome courses. And so it was just, it was a cool, a cool moment to see you up there and gave me that boost to like, okay, fine. And like, you know, push up that last hill through to the finish. So appreciated it for sure. I was, yeah. And I was fortunate in the years that I spent racing before coming a race director. I really, paid attention and, and tried to glean what I what I saw at other events that I thought were were important details. And there's an adventure racing series on Vancouver Island called Mind Over Mountain Adventure Race. And Brian Tazak is the race director, and he's a good buddy. I've done, I'm going to loosely say, 15 to 20 of those races over the years. And that was, in the first few years I got into things, it was adventure racing based for me, multi-sport. But the thing I took away from the MOMAR, um, the acronym, from Brian's races were he made everybody feel special and he made sure that the last finisher coming off of the course felt just as rewarded and appreciated as the first finishers coming off the course. Mm. And that was something I really made a note of in doing his races. And I, and that was one of the founding principles of my own race series was just, we're going to make sure that we celebrate every single person that comes out to join us at any of our races. Amazing. I, I recently, uh, for the first time, was on the, the cheer station side of a race, and I, for, for whatever reason, hadn't done that before. Um, found myself injured for a race that I signed up for and decided I'd go, go out and cheer. And I was amazed that I, I drew the same, if not more, inspiration from watching all of these runners than I have in the past in, in running events. And uh, like almost moved to emotion, like watching, you know, moms run with strollers and uh, you know, old, old ladies and old men in their 80s plus, like just kind of shuffling along. Um, and I, I'm just curious if there's if, if one story or one incident comes to mind of a runner that you might have witnessed as a race director at um, one of your events. If there, if you can think of one one instance where you just like drew incredible inspiration or, or found yourself that you were moved by just witnessing, you know, some of the runners at your events. 
Yeah, and you bring up a really good point there, and that's something that I share. I share with lots of people um, is you know if you're afraid of an event, if there's something that scares you, and you have reasons why you might doubt that you're able to do it, go out and volunteer for that that event or equivalent, and spend a day seeing who's actually out there, and you will very rapidly see yourself in someone mm-hmm. um, throughout that day, and you will get the inspiration to realize that you can actually do the thing that you're doubting the most. Uh, when you see other people that are exactly like you, as you mentioned, of all ages, all groups, all shapes and sizes, it's really special to be on the sidelines, just seeing the the wide range of people that tackle these um, these events. And uh, yeah, specific to your question, I mean, in ten years, there's been there's been a lot of stories over the years, and um, and I'm very fortunate that you know, especially for my longer races and Squamish, um, people really want to share their journey. Uh, with me. And I get a lot of really incredible personal details from people who have, who have just gone to hell and back um, to find themselves at that finish line. Um, People I always take motivation from. um, So um, one person uh, from, I believe, California, his name is Dave Thomas. And Dave came up every year to try to finish the Squamish 50-50, which involves running 50 miles on Saturday and 50K on Sunday. And he was so invested in this, and this was his white whale. And every year he would come up, and every year something would happen that would keep him shy of the finish line. And I think after four years, he made it all the way to the last aid station on day two before getting cut off. And he, and our volunteers at that aid station became friends of his. He was a part of their online group and network, and they were his biggest fans. And that you know something really special with our races are the volunteers. And Dave came back in his fifth year, and he actually got his – um, his 50-50 finisher hat for getting through both days. And it's crazy. I find myself actually like almost getting emotional right now because yeah, it's such a powerful moment to see um, to see someone just not quit on something that's so meaningful to them. And yeah. that was a really special finish, not just for me, but for the volunteers, the people that had gotten to know him through five years of seeing this guy chase it. Um, and then there are a lot of stories of, of, of weight loss and health being peeled back, you know, getting the warning from the doctor, your life needs a change. And I mean, there's a local runner in Whistler and he's been out to our races lately and he's lost a hundred pounds in the last, um, in, I think he lost a hundred within 18 months, maybe. Um, and when you see him now, he looks like, um, like a healthy, healthy person. You would never guess, you would never imagine that this person had a hundred additional pounds on his frame. I'm guessing he weighs about 180 or something right now. So he was close to 300 pounds. And I always find those stories just really special to, to continue to get people reiterating that they can make drastic life changes when they find the right inspiration to do so. Yeah. Uh, that's incredible. It's so, it's so cool uh, being able to witness that and see that. And I'm, I'm sure it gives you lots of inspiration when it, you know, comes time to, you know, start the next race plan or, start to make the, put the call out to volunteers. It's those little moments that, uh, that make it all worth it. And they really are the big moments. Even, even hearing the story of, of the, the 50 finish, 50 finish, 50, 50 finisher getting, <laughs> getting through both. Fast. It's just like, <laughs> you know, that's the first time hearing about it. And I have no connection to this guy. And I'm sitting here and like have goosebumps just thinking about how significant that would be and what a moment for not only himself, but like you said, for you and the other volunteers that kind of befriended this guy over the, over the course of five years. And, and it also speaks to something I think that's important just to highlight is like the the trail running community is incredible. And the fact that people will come out and volunteer year after year for a race, you know, uh, 
stand in the rain, maybe in the cold, somewhere out in the forest, ringing a bell or passing out snacks. Like there's such an amazing community that is created through these through these races, through these events. And it's in some ways like it's so much bigger than running. A hundred percent. And Squamish for us in particular, that's the race where every year just huge percentages of runners come up to me and say, I've never seen volunteers like this. I've never seen support like this in a trail race before. And we're, we've been so fortunate in 10 years. This is our 10th anniversary this summer coming up in 2022 and the 10th edition, because there was the the missed um, edition as well through the pandemic. But we're so fortunate that so many of those volunteers have been with us from the start. And, you know, just one example of many is our last aid station on the course. It's at a trail entrance called Farside. And Kyle Conway is the, the um, aid station captain for that. And he has been there for, I want to say, seven years now, maybe. Um, and he brings all of his friends, all of his team. And every year he comes up with a theme and he just asks me, like, how much can I spend? And I'm like, you spend what you need to spend, make it special. We'll reimburse you. I just want to see what you come up with. And he never tells us, myself and my co-race director, Jeff Langford, what it's going to be. And we have to go out to the aid station to check it out. And he's done everything from Game of Thrones, where we he had my head and Jeff's head printed and on stakes in the forest, um, <laughs> to the most impressive one, the most surprising one, I want to say three years ago, maybe. Um, it's tough with pandemic time to nail down dates anymore. But uh, he created a mini Barkley at the aid station, and he was in the process of making this happen, and completely serendipitously, his neighbor across the street was cleaning out his garage something like two weeks before race day and had a bin of license plates on his lawn. And Kyle walked up and was like, what are you doing with those? Can I have them? And he, so he managed to build out his, his Barkley and then even hang, it was like 70 historic British Columbia license plates. So yeah, our volunteers are incredible and they really care. They really care about providing a, a, a wonderful experience for our runners. That's amazing. Shout out, shout out to Kyle. It was Kyle, right? Yeah, absolutely. That's, yeah, and they even they even have their own Twitter handle now. I think it's Squamish Fifty Farside or SQ Fifty Farside okay. um, for their own. Like they have their own group and everything in there. So, and that's what Dave Thomas had become a part of was that aid station group. Awesome. Oh, that's so cool. We got adding that to our our bucket list of uh, to do's the the Squamish Fifty Fifty. Oh, yeah. yeah. Maybe next summer. Whew. Get there. <laughs> <laughs> Um, all right. Well, we've kind of highlighted, um, some of, some of the beautiful things of, of witnessing running, but let's talk about your own running career. Uh, a lot of, you know, prolific runners, you know, they start their careers in in high school or younger, and they've gone on to have college or university successes. Uh, but that wasn't the case for yourself. You, you, you kind of got into running a little later in life around 27, if I, if I believe. And, um, you know, You've had international success and have created a name for yourself uh, globally in running and, and kind of created this incredible community of trail runners here in, in beautiful British Columbia. So let, let's get into your origins and how you found running and, and how you don't necessarily need to be a runner at you know, 16, 17, 18. Uh, you, can, you can find your own start line and it doesn't have to be as a teenager in high school or, you know, even in your early twenties. Yeah. And I'm going to take you on a bit of a story now, because as I mentioned to you guys um, before 
when we were agreeing to do the podcast. Um, I've never really had a chance to dive into kind of the long form of how I got into the sport. And I just feel that as I'm now, I'm 45, I'm on the back half of, of my running career, if you will, or certainly my, my competitive trying to be at, at the front or on the podium side of things. I've, I've been able to step back and kind of look at my journey a little bit more in its entirety and appreciate where I ended up and how I ended up there. Because as you mentioned, I didn't start really running until I was 27. I know for a fact I had run less than 100 total miles in my life before I turned 27 because I had a couple of false starts with trying to be a runner and I logged the mileage and it was all there, like me quitting within eight days of trying to run kind of thing. <laughs> um, but but um, going all the way back, so yeah, I, uh, I grew up in Newfoundland on the East Coast. Um, wonderful, supportive, loving family. Um, but I decided when I was 12, I told my mother that I, my, my dream was to travel the world and she kind of laughed it off, but then was really proud when she saw me actually, uh, go forth and do that eventually. And at 19 years old, um, I kind of, my life shifted a little bit and broke up with the person I was seeing, lost my job that I had and I found myself in this space where I wanted to change. And I'd always dreamt about real mountains and wilderness and, um, and Banff, Alberta was a big thing for Newfoundlanders then because they did a lot of their hiring process by reaching out to, to Newfoundlanders to come out and work there. So I applied, I got hired over the phone as a, as a dishwasher, a pot washer. And I, I flew to Banff as a 19 year old, um, with, <clears throat> with less than $500 in my pocket. Um, my father worked at the post office. My mother worked at the grocery store, a uh, lot of support, really love my folks. Um, but we didn't grow up in poverty by any stretch, but definitely uh, didn't really have much of a safety blanket when I left home of, of not being able to make it work. And looking back, I think that was a very good thing because I wanted to make it work. And I knew that I was going to have to work hard to get my footing in a new province, a new area where I didn't know anybody. And uh, I flew to Banff, Alberta, February 27th, 1997. And I don't know why I remember that date, but I guess it was pretty meaningful in my life. <laughs> and uh, started working at the Banff Springs Hotel. Um, wanted to learn to ski, wanted to learn to kind of play in the mountains. And I, I did that over the next couple of years. Um, and as I was learning to ski and um, finding my footing, if you will, in that environment, I was also 19, left home for the first time and uh, mostly learning to drink and party a lot. Um, I, I am very fortunate that I, I, get, I don't have the alcoholic gene, I guess, because multiple people in my life at that time thought I did have a drinking problem. Um, uh, I had stretches of drinking to blackout drunk for 14, 21 days straight kind of thing. But for me, it was partying. It was having a good time. I was just enjoying my life. And, and somehow I always knew that, no, I could stop whenever I wanted. I just didn't want to stop. And I, I wanted to, you know, I, I would go, I, I guess I go all in on things when I'm um, <laughs> dedicated to it. So I was a dedicated partier and drinker. And um, I ended up um, not ballooning, but put on, my, I was 25, 30 pounds heavier than I am now as a runner. And that was what the lifestyle was. Um, but through a couple of years of doing this, living and working at the Banff Springs Hotel, uh, you get to meet a lot of international people, um, you know, people from around the world coming to work there. And that really opened my eyes to the possibility of now traveling, leaving the country uh, as a eventually 21 year old. Um, and I remember vividly at the time, I, I'm someone I worked with had cycled 
He biked from Alaska to Banff. And this was the most mind-blowing thing I had ever heard. And I remember telling him he needed to write a book. <laughs> like, like, you cycle, like, that, that's, that's obviously book-worthy. Like, you need to write a book because I want to read about that journey. And looking back, like, it just speaks to my inexperience um, with being worldly, I guess, and, um, and how inspired, how easily inspired I was to try to get out there and to, to go to new areas. So on New Year's of 1998, I decided that I wanted to spend, I wanted in a year to be somewhere else in the world. And I was trying to decide where, and I was, at that point, I'd worked up from pot washer to dishwasher to busboy to server to bartender. And I was bartending. And at like 11 o'clock at night on New Year's into 1999, I, my brain was just completely elsewhere. And all of a sudden, I looked at this box of strawberries and I'd been putting these strawberries on drinks all night and it said New Zealand, New Zealand strawberries, which is really funny to me because I don't think of New Zealand as being a strawberry exporter, but there it was. And I said, that's it, New Zealand, Australia, 99 into 2000 millennium. I wanna be one of the first people in the world to see the sunrise on the new millennium. And right there that night, I decided in 12 months, that's where I was gonna be. And I spent the next 12 months making sure that I was peeling back from my drinking budget just enough to put aside enough money to buy a flight and, and head to Australia and New Zealand. Um, and I flew to Australia and New Zealand in early November of 99. And I brought a bike and a trailer with me because I was convinced that this is what I was going to do. I was going to cycle tour, but I wasn't a cyclist. I didn't, I, I owned a bike. It was a cheap bike, but I didn't really ride much, but, and I, and pre nine 11, um, I basically had my bike in a bike box and a burly kid trailer that I literally duct taped to the outside of my bike box. So it's this insanely huge piece <laughs> of luggage. And I just walked up and like, they checked it and put it on the flight. And it's just so funny to look back like 20, 23 years as to how different flight to international travel was before we went through this massive shift in 2001. Mm. Um, so I showed up in New Zealand, my bike and my trailer, and I remember going into a grocery store, buying groceries, putting them in the trailer, and then biking out of Auckland, New Zealand, and uh, into like a smaller town. And I had, because I was 21 and didn't really have a lot of experience with taking care of myself, um, cooking and stuff, I was very simple. I, I had literally gone in and bought a bunch of canned foods, and I put about 45 pounds of canned food in my bike trailer. And I was like, <laughs> 10 minutes into my ride before I had realized what a terrible plan that was. So I biked that day for a couple hours with this insanely heavy bike trailer uh, with full of canned foods because I thought that's how a bike tour was supposed to go. Uh, so I was very green. I was very much figuring it out. And I biked all of, I'm going to say, it might have been a week, two weeks max. And it wasn't, it wasn't happening for me. And I... So when I was in New Zealand and Australia, I, uh, I was living out of my tent. And at the time, I don't know if they still do this, but you could stay at a hostel, but camp in the backyard of the hostel. So you'd spend, I think it was like 12 or $13. You drop your tent in the yard, you get to utilize the hostel and meet everybody. And it was, it was wonderful because you had your own bedroom that came with you. There was like a familiarity each day, but you still got the socialization and the meeting of travelers through the hostel. Um, but I checked into this hostel and there was this van 
on the front lawn, a Toyota Hiace, an open van with a like a big belly of a van and a back door that opened. And there was a note that said, this van is going to be destroyed on November 20, November 23rd or something. And it was already like November 30th. So I just happened to ask the owner of the hostel, like, what's the deal with the van? And he's like, oh, it's technically illegal at the time. Like vehicles in New Zealand needed an ID. And he had spliced together two pieces of paper ID to make an illegal ID for the van <laughs> because, and he got caught. And in New Zealand at the time, if there was a rust hole the size of a Canadian loony, you, you weren't allowed on the road. And this thing had rust holes literally the size of my arm. So no surprise as to why it got pulled. So anyways, I was heading out for a few day hike and I was like, you know, would you sell it to me? And he's like, I'll think about it. I came back three days later from a hike and he's like, here's the rules. I can sell it to you for parts. If you get caught, I had nothing to do with it. Um, the tires were bald. The back door didn't close fully. There was literally a hole under the gas pedal. And there was a very specific way to start this van that took approximately 45 to 60 seconds for how you turn the key and hit the gas and turn the key and hit the gas. But it worked. And he assured me it would always work as long as you followed those rules. <laughs> so I, I bought the van for $200 and then I sold my bike and my trailer for, I want to say $400 or something. So I was, I was up a few hundred bucks, got this van. And then the very first thing I did was drive down the street to the hardware store and I bought a roll of duct tape and a can of spray paint. And I duct taped over all of the holes on the van and I spray painted over the duct tape. And then I went to a garage and they welded a plate under the gas pedal and they welded the back door shut. And I left the next day in this $200 van. And this was my travel companion for the rest of my time in New Zealand. <laughs> That's incredible. So, <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it, um, so I, I went into this with the idea of bike touring, but I quickly ended up with what, what ended up being a much better, uh, I think, means of travel in hindsight. So anyways, that, that story got a little bit longer than I, than I thought it would, but I, I ended up spending um, New Year's Eve of 1999 in Queenstown, New Zealand, and I had met a bunch of other Canadians. There were nine of us that headed out that night. Only two of us made it the whole way through the night to sunrise. And it was a super cloudy day and it got bright for about two seconds before that was it. So I didn't, I didn't have a magnificent sunrise beginning to the, to the new millennium. But what was cool was laying on the couch at the hostel and watching all of the New Year celebrations around the rest of the world that day. Um, and so I spent four months traveling New Zealand and then I flew to Australia and I spent eight months traveling Australia. And at this point, I, I again bought a, a super cheap car, one that had some issues. It wasn't quite waterproof. Uh, but it did run okay and traveled around Australia for eight months um, in a cheap vehicle and lots of stories here and there through through Australia. But I think the, the one that comes to mind the most is I was in Port Douglas, Australia, north of Cairns on the northeast coast. And I was living in my tent, as I mentioned. I was running low on, on um, finances at that point. My trip was coming to an end. I was only a few months away from 12 and heading back to Canada. And uh, <clears throat> I happened to arrive when they were filming a movie called South Pacific with Glenn Close and Harry Connick Jr. And I had hair on my head at that point in my life. And they were casting any male that had that, that looked semi-fit. So I ended up being an extra in, uh, in uh, South Pacific. And I decided, so you show up and they were paying $17 an hour on weekdays and like 25 on weekends. It was this magnificent gig for someone living out of their tent. And they had these like two-tier buffets of food. So after a couple of days, I decided I was going to be Robin Hood. I was just going to bring Ziploc bags and start smuggling food out 
of the the movie theater set and back to the campground. And at the end of the day, I'd come back and people would just be like, what do we get today? But I got I got brazen with it and I walked up and uh, I saw a nicer food buffet and I walked right up there and um, one of the grips or somebody kind of walked over. He's like, what are you doing here? And I was like, oh, just this food looks really good. He's like, yeah, this is for the actors. <laughs> Extras <laughs> over there. Get the heck out of here before we run you right off the set. Um, so uh, worked there for a little bit. And then eventually after 12 months, uh, returned to Canada and, and back to Banff again. Um, but then <clears throat> when I returned to Banff, this was now 2001, um, and I had a bunch of jobs through Banff. I was a bus driver for 27 passenger bus. I was a taxi driver for six months through the winter uh, because driving taxi in Banff in the winter was the best job ever to be a ski bum. I would work 3 p.m. till 3 a.m., three days a week, 36 hours. I made enough money to pay my rent, and then I would make 100 to $150 in gratuities a day, and that was my spending money. And then you could ski seven days a week as long as you the snow was there finish at 3 a.m., take a nap, and head to the ski hills. So, uh, But while I was doing this, I had decided that uh, I wanted to do another trip. I was now addicted to travel. I wanted to go somewhere. And I wanted now to do a bike trip, a cycling trip. It was, it, it, I, it was meaningful to me. I wanted to make that happen. So essentially, I was in Banff in 2001, and I was going backwards. It's really hard to save money in that town. Um, and I came back from Australia with debt because I just didn't want to leave the country. So... I sat down one day, made a list of like how I, what jobs I can do that make that pay really well. And it was like Alaskan crab fishery, uh, oil and gas, Disney, because people had worked at Disney and said that they paid incredibly well, cruise ships. So I made these like, these are the jobs that I could do. And then I started ticking them off one at a time as the ones that were impossible. Like I can't, I can't go to Alaska and work in Alaska. And it came down to Canadian oil and gas patch. And in late 2001 I had a Buick 6000 and I packed it up and I kind of like teared up and and left Banff because I was in debt and I wanted to travel again and I needed to make money and I just didn't have the ability I didn't have a degree or a career or any way to like make the money to make this dream happen so I I left Banff and I drove to Fort St. John BC and something that's really cool, though, is I left during a meteor shower and I slept in my car on the side of the road on the way to Jasper. And I counted 232 meteors before I fell asleep that night, which was still like one of the most memorable. And it just gave me this sense of like, you're you're in the right space that you need to be right now. This is a really hard decision. One step back, two steps forward. But that for me was just a, a beautiful night. Mm. Um, and um, so I showed up in Fort St. John, B.C., with zero experience in the oil and gas industry, zero construction experience, zero relevancy for anything. And I was like, this is it, this is my path. They pay a lot of money. Um, I told a buddy in Banff, I made up a fake resume <laughs> and I told him he was a foreman of like, you know, Nick Rael construction. And if they called him, here was, here was what I was all about. Um, Turns out they don't do resume or background checks in Fort St. John in the oil and gas industry. You show up every morning at 545 and the second that someone else doesn't show up for some reason, you go out on the job site and you get a chance to prove yourself. So I, it took me, um, it took me the better part of two weeks and it was a really, I nearly quit. I nearly turned back. 
Um, at one point I was just in this, like this trailer living cause it was all I could afford. And, um, there was a, a ruckus, if you will, one night and, uh, it got, it got a bit sketchy for a while. And I was asking after what had happened. And this guy was accusing someone of stealing his paycheck of $2,000 for two weeks work. And uh, he, he smoked it away. He basically major drug addiction had just basically his 2000 went up in smoke within 36 hours of being paid. And, and it was like, okay, this is this, I'm not in, um, not in Banff anymore. Right. And I, I cried myself to sleep actually just thinking like, what the hell are you doing here? This is, this is, this so far removed from anything I've ever lived in my life. I don't know if I have what it takes to dedicate myself to this. Um, and I had my keys in my hand and Banff was 10 hours away and I could get a job in like minutes by going back. But I made it through that night and showed up the next morning. And sure enough, it was the first day they sent me out on the job site. Um, and I, I was a welder's assistant that day. So at one point the welder is like, okay, go in that trailer and bring out a four inch 90. I'm like, yeah, sure. And I walk in the trail. I'm like, what the fuck is a four inch 90? Like, <laughs> like, well, that has a 90 degree hook in it. And that looks like it might have a four inch diameter. And I walked out of the trailer and held it and just kind of stood there and looked at him. And he looked at me as if like, yeah, hurry the hell up. And I was like, okay, I got it right. All right. So um, I'm really working my way through this. And thankfully this guy can see that like, I'm, I'm dedicated. I'm, I'm, I don't have a drug or a, a, any addiction problem. I'm there to work. I'm there to work hard, but I'm dumb as shit. And he leans into my ear at one point and he goes, listen, listen, I'm going to tell you something. Okay. Right now, I want you to remember it. Just never forget this. Okay. Righty, tighty, lefty, Lucy. (laughs) (laughs) I actually didn't know how to properly like turn nuts and bolts. I was just like cranking each direction, hoping for the best. So uh, I gave myself away really quickly as being uh, inexperienced. But I showed up every day and, uh, and eventually I actually got on, uh, with one of the best pipe fitters that was there in Fort St. John as a pipe fitters assistant. And when you get on and you get a gig, you work 12 plus hours a day, seven days a week, three to four months at a time. And then you work in camp and then you get two days off, three days off in between jobs before you go back in again. And it was perfect because I was essentially making a hundred thousand dollars that year. I mean, you're literally working nonstop, but you have nowhere to spend the money. It goes straight into your bank account. You're living in camp. Your expenses are low. So I was there. I was doing it. It was it was working out. And um, at one point, I think it was four months in, we had a 72-hour window when we got out of camp. And I grabbed my car, got out of camp, drove 10 and a half hours to Banff, got there for last call, went in, just started hanging out with friends, ran into a bunch of friends, crashed on someone's couch, got up the next morning, had breakfast, got in my car, drove back to Fort St. John, and then went back to work the next day. And it was like everything I needed in that moment was just like I needed some sense of normalcy for me um, in my people, my community. But um, so, and while I was doing this, at the time in the 90s, I had seen Eco Challenge. And Eco Challenge is this expedition adventure race that became quite famous. They had a reboot there a couple of years ago on Amazon Prime, but it, it only it ended up being a one-off. But essentially with Eco Challenge, the race winners are five to six days out. The cutoff is like 10 days. 
you cover between 500 and 700 kilometers and it's kayaking and mountain biking and trekking and running and ropes work and it can be horseback riding or diving or like um, scuba diving and I was like this is it because for me in the 90s as someone who was drinking too much I didn't think I could be a runner I didn't think I could be an elite athlete but I knew that I wanted to adventure and I knew that this expedition stuff was pretty cool and I knew that I had a really deep level of ability to commit to something and to suffer through things. So Eco Challenge was the spur- first spark for me. And when I was working in Fort St. John, <clears throat> at one point we ended up having to do a 36-hour shift, 36 straight hours. We were testing a pipe uh, for leaks. And I remember vividly in that moment really struggling. And I guess I should also say Fort St. John through winter the the you can only get into these oil sites when there's there's permafrost when everything freezes um so i'm working outside 12 hours a day and i'm working with big wrenches like one inch wrenches as a pipe fitter pipe fitters assistant um i had a 21 day stretch in fort st john where the warmest it got was minus 27 i worked in up to minus 45 was our cut so if it was minus 45 you were allowed to stop working if it was minus 44 you were not allowed to stop working um, I took away ray nodes, like a hand circulation issue with me from this part of my life, but it's, uh, it was, it was worth it for what everything else that I got, but it was not easy work. It was very physically taxing. I know the first two weeks I was on a job, I had to crawl out of bed in the morning and literally use like my arms and my whole body to get myself out of bed because I was so physically destroyed from this, this work. And thankfully by the third week, I started to get conditioned to it and it started to, to be normalized a little bit. But we're on this 36-hour test site, and I just remember thinking, like, treat it like an adventure race. Treat it like an expedition. Like, you, how are you going to handle this? And that, for me, in hindsight, it's just incredible that I was in Fort St. John in 2002 working in the oil and gas industry. And where I sit right now in 2022, two decades later, to think that I had this, this vision for what I wanted to do with zero experience doing it. And it it materialized. Um, So I got through the winter in Fort St. John and then they shut down. And in the summer, you just don't work as much, but I still wanted to work. I was there for one year, wanted to make as much money as I could. So I was on four 10 hour shifts instead of seven 12 hour shifts. So I went and got a second job and I ended up serving hot dogs outside the nightclub on Friday night and Saturday night. So I'd work Monday to Friday, 10 hours a day. And then I Friday, I'd leave work at the oil patch. Now you're not in camp anymore. You're back in town because everything is thawed out. And I would go pick up a hot dog trailer from this guy. And then I'd drive it to the nightclub. And then I'd work hot dog stand for five hours. And I'd make 125 to 150 a night in tips. And I think most importantly for me is I also got to experience the nightclub scene without actually going into it. And I, I just saw that if I had that free time on the weekends, I was probably going to start leaning into it more than I wanted to. I wanted to bank every penny that I could. So make it through the year. And then I give my boss a one month notice. And I've been talking about this trip. I'm going to Central America. So I had decided I'm going to Central America. I'm going to fly into Guatemala. I'm going to cycle tour all, all seven Central American countries, or sorry, all six, six, seven Central American countries. And I've been talking about this for 11 months. So I give him a one, one month notice. And he says, what do you mean you're leaving in a month? 
And his name was Sasha, German. I'm like, Sasha, I've been talking about this for 11 months. <laughs> He's like, I've been doing this for 20 years. I hear all kinds of shit. Nobody ever follows through on this. <laughs> so <laughs> he said, listen, um, he, I came in the next day and he's like, okay, here's the deal. I'm going to get you your own truck. I'm going to get you running an operation for me. And your starting wage is going to be 225. And you can work your way up to 250 pretty quick. And like, I, I think you're, you know, you've got some real potential here and I want to, I want to keep this going. So I went, went home that night and was like, Jesus, I, like I, I graduated high school. I'm not a complete idiot, but I, I, I didn't go to, I went to university for one semester before deciding I was, I needed to get out and do something else. But yeah, I never in my life thought I was going to have an opportunity to make almost a quarter of a million dollars a year. And I was very tempted. And I, I went in the next day and I was driving in in the morning. I still didn't know what I was going to do. And then I thought, you're always going to have an opportunity to come back to this. If, if he's offering you this, you can come back if you pursue something else and it doesn't work out, but you're only going to get one shot at leaving this town because if you take this gig, this is your new home. And I like, I like, I enjoyed a lot of things about Fort St. John, uh, but it wasn't where I had had planned to settle down. So I, uh, I said no, and he was very surprised by that, but also very supportive. And uh, 28 days after that, I left Fort St. John and went back to Newfoundland for Christmas to visit my folks. And then I flew to Central America to go on a one-year cycle trip. And I had just worked a year in the oil patch, and I hadn't ridden a bike at all in that 12 months because I was working nonstop. And the bike I had, I had purchased it from an ex-girlfriend for $200. It was a Da Vinci Chameleon with like first-generation rock shocks. Um, but all my other gear I leaned into. I bought a nice tent and all the camping gear that I thought I was going to need for the trip. And uh, when, at the time, in, in the, the year 2003, so my year of travel through Central America was 03, you, needed, you couldn't go one way into Central America. You needed a return trip. So I booked a return itinerary and printed my itinerary and then canceled my return trip because I had no, <laughs> no like fixed date. So when I arrived at the border in Guatemala, and when I flew in, they're like, okay, show us your flight details. I'm like, oh, yeah, here's my return flight, which I canceled like three, two months prior or whatever. And I was allowed into Guatemala. And I showed up with my mountain bike in Guatemala City. And it was kind of like, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> cool. I made it here. I didn't have the time to plan past this. <laughs> this I, I had fulfilled the vision to get into Central America with my bike, but... Past that, I hadn't had really had time to focus on. So I had actually managed to wrangle uh, a buddy into starting this trip with me. And we ended up spending the first, I want to say, two and a half months together, maybe. I think it was about 10 weeks. And, um, and it was funny because <clears throat> we had met in Australia. He was Dutch. We didn't know each other that well, but we both knew that we had a similar flair or excitement for travel and, and the cycling. And we learned that like he was literally 18 hours older than me. Um, and we eventually started button heads just cause we didn't know each other that well, but he would always default to like, Gary, I know you don't understand what I'm saying right now, but maybe if you wait another 18 hours or so, you'll really start to start to get it, <laughs> which I thought was actually, actually pretty funny. Um, but, uh, <clears throat> yeah, ended up in central America with this bike and had no idea what I was doing and, uh, um, started putting some miles under us and, uh, in Guatemala in particular, you know, I'll, I'll, wrap this in a little bit here, but a couple of quick stories from that trip that really stand out to me. 
Um, and this does have a point. It does lead me to where I am. So the uh, so in Guatemala, we we really wanted to get off the beaten path. We didn't like the Gringo Trail. Even in, in 2003, it felt really crowded. And you'd be in communities and, you know, there'd be an expectation. Like the waiters, the people that were serving you didn't get paid. Their pay was was gratuities. And I was like, okay, it feels like this place has already been altered significantly by tourism. We wanted to escape that, which our bikes allowed us to do. We didn't have to get on buses. We didn't have to stick to a gringo path. So we were looking at maps. And at the time, we had three different maps. And all of them were slightly different for this town called Barrias. And if I'm not mistaken, I haven't, I haven't double-checked this in years, but this is just how I recall it. But I think the town had 7,000 people, but it didn't show any real known roads in and out. And there wasn't water access. So there had to be roads, but they just didn't show up on the maps that we had. And we decided that we wanted to check this out. Like we wanted a true, true experience of small town Guatemala. So we set out to do this route together. And it became very clear very quickly that we were going to struggle to navigate this. Our maps were inconsistent. And then anytime we asked for directions, the only way people knew how to get to this town was on the bus because why would you ever travel to this? Like, you don't own a car. It's not like you go out for leisure. It's like, how do you get to Barrias? Well, you get on the bus and the bus stop is right over here and that bus is going to take you there. Um, so we, we ended up with lots of wrong turns and, um, but eventually found, found our way through. And <clears throat> it was fascinating just being in small town Guatemala and seeing um, full, full uh, Mayan descent settlements, um, a couple of the other indigenous um, tribes that elude me at this moment, but like you'd go through a town and basically the tallest person in town would be, you know, four foot three and everything was quite traditional and they would actually turn their back to you because they were, were worried. Like, and I said, if a sheep dies in the next few days, like it's getting blamed on us. Like we've got to really um, <laughs> just be like really cautious as we're going through these towns. And then the next town, the kids would run to the side of the road and they cheer you on. And it was like, so we got to this town of Barrios and the first woman I saw was six feet tall and looked white. And it was just a fascinating experience to see the cultural um, eth ethnic um, diversity, even in that, that corner of Guatemala. Uh, but what was neat is as we were biking through and staying at little um, roadside houses and stuff along the way, we kept asking, you know, have you ever seen cyclists before? Have you ever seen cyclists before? And no, no, no. And then we get to one spot and, the, and or have you ever seen tourists before? And one woman said, oh, yeah, we see people here all the time. And my heart broke a little bit where I was like, oh, I thought we were doing something unique. Like I thought we might've actually been the first people to, to bike this route. And she's like, yeah, we see people all the time. Like there was a girl that hitchhiked through here, like, I don't know, 12 or 13 months ago. <laughs> I was like, Sweet. All right. Thank you. You have confirmed everything. There are not people that go through this route regularly. So it was like 135 or 50 kilometers of off-road cycling and, um, uh, off map and everything else, but it was a really empowering, um, and it just set the tone for the rest of the trip. That was within the first, first, uh, five, six weeks. Um, <clears throat> so anyways, me and this guy, Bart, we end up going our separate ways once we get towards Belize. And when, and then I went to, you know, went into Belize and Belize is an English speaking country and the, the dollar was fixed to the American currency. So it was kind of a wake up call of like, Oh, life is easier here. You can communicate with people, but it's also way more expensive. So when I left Belize, I got on a skiff going back into Guatemala, had my bike. They dropped me off on the dock, got on my bike, started riding away. And then maybe like 45 minutes later, I thought, I didn't see a border guard. I didn't see anybody. I'm, I'm in Guatemala, but my passport still says Belize. And that night, I ended up at this little hostel or whatnot. And there was um, 
a Spanish cyclist and I, I went up and talked to him and he's like, oh yeah, no, you've got to go like into town and find this guy and go to his house. And, and at this point I was, you know, 50 or 60 kilometers away in a day's effort. And he said, yeah, if you try to leave the country and you don't have the uh, exit stamp, you're sent to Guatemala City, you're detained for a couple of days and they'll fine you like 200 US dollars or something. And I thought, well, that's not good. I don't want any of that, but I'm also not turning around and biking another hundred kilometers, 50 there and 50 back. And I, I head off the next morning and just thought, whatever, I'll figure it out. <laughs> so I, I arrive at the Honduran border a week later and I'm biking up to the border and I'm like, what exactly are you planning to do right now? It's like, I don't know. Just like, calm down. You're going to figure it out. It's okay. You're going to make it work. So there's a border, there's a guy at the border. Everybody in central in Guatemala has guns, whether they had bullets in them or not, who knows, but everybody had machine guns. Um, uh, so guy has the gate to get into Honduras and he's got a little string and it's clear that like he opens and closes the gate. So I, I bike up to the gate and then just put a big smile on my face. And I'm just like, buenos dias, senor. As though he's just going to be like, yeah, sure. Come on in. And he just kind of points the gun at the, at the entrance at the, the check-in. And I was like, yeah, perfect. Okay. That's where I'm going now. Sure. And I go into the building and I walk through the door and I immediately look to my right and off in the corner, you can see where you're supposed to check in for your, your border stamp. And there's like five people in line and there's a bathroom immediately on the left. So I just jump in the bathroom and I was like, okay, all right. Uh, what now? I was like, um, okay. So what are the chances he's going to look at your passport? I don't know. Uh, how long do you think it would take? It looked like a lineup of five. I'm going to say like nine minutes. So I sat in the bathroom for nine minutes. And then I jumped out of the bathroom door, through the front door, got on my bike, and then just biked up to this guy again, just kind of like waving my passport. And he pulled up on the lever and opened the gate and released me into Honduras. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm, and I'm like, holy shit, I did it. This is amazing. <laughs> And there was this glorious, like, eight-kilometer paved road descent. And I'm just, like, singing to myself and waving my arms. And I'm like, woohoo, this is amazing. And then at the bottom of the road, there's the entrance into Honduras. And I was like, oh, shit, that was no man's land. So I go up to the entrance into Honduras, and he asks for my passport. And he takes it, and he starts scrolling through. And I'm like, oh, fuck. And I grab my passport from him, and I... I have an entry stamp into, or sorry, an exit stamp from Guatemala into Belize. And so I grabbed my passport. I find my exit stamp from Guatemala. And it was like, you know, a nine day difference. So instead of being the 29th that day, it was the 21st. So I put my finger over the one and I hold it there. And I put my passport in front of him and point at it like, there's my exit stamp, you know, whatever, January 2, you know, and he, he, <laughs> pulls my passport to try to get it out of my hand, but I won't let go. And we end up in a tugging match for my passport. And he's just very confused by all of this. And he eventually just kind of throws his arms up and looks at me and looks at the date and then stamps an entry stamp into Honduras. <laughs> I, and I, I, so I have a gap. I can, like I have my passport. I can verify this story, but man, that was the, uh, the, the closest I came to actually like crapping my pants two times and <laughs> within an hour. <laughs> Oh my god. That's wild, man. So you got you got in, you got in. So I got in and then, you know, to wrap up the long story here, when I went to Central America, I had a one-way flight. I was planning to work in the dive industry, 
and get dive certified in Honduras in the, um, on the island of Roatan, which at the time was one of the most renowned and cheapest places in the world to become a dive instructor. And I thought I'll become a dive instructor and then I'll cycle tour between diving destinations and that's how I'm going to continue traveling. And I thought I was going to go across the Darien Gap and I was going to go into South America and I was just going to, I was gone for years. This was my plan. And I got dive certified in Honduras. I became a dive master. And then as I was pursuing becoming a dive instructor, I ended up with an issue on a dive and my ear blew out and I was the tail on the dive and I, I nearly passed out. I nearly blacked out on the back of this dive. And then I kind of, I rattled my tank and notified people. And then you have to do a safety stop in the water. I came out of the water, went to the dive doctor on Roatan, who was an American doctor that was a developer on the island, but was donating his time because he was a doctor and didn't have a lot of diagnostic tools. But I talk him through what had happened. And he says, you've had an inner ear fistula and you punctured, you perforated your eardrum. And if you get back in the water, you will go deaf. It's just a matter of when. You've damaged your eardrum permanently. If you get back in the water, he's like, your diving career is over. And like, I had no money left. This was like, this, I was all in on this plan. And I sat there with tears streaming down my face, just like, this can't possibly be, this can't be happening. Like, this is this is it. This can't be happening. Um, and then I broke the news to my companions in the dive, um, dive shop and <clears throat> realized that my Central American and eventual potential South American travels were done. Um, I got a job bartending and then I bartended in the evenings for, I want to say a month and a half and was putting aside all of my money so I could afford to essentially buy a flight back to Canada um, and then I biked, I cycled on down through Nicaragua and Costa Rica and flew back to Canada for Christmas that year. And that was my one year in Central America, um, 7,000 kilometers, six countries and a magnificent experience, but it just ended so abruptly and unexpectedly. And in this process of trying to figure myself out, I had decided that if I'm returning to Canada, I'm going to pursue expedition adventure racing. And it feels to me uh, and I don't know fate or anything else through life, but it just felt like there's a new direction for me right now. And I am going to lean into this with everything that I'm worth because something was stolen from me. And the only other thing that really meant anything to me in the back of my mind was the potential to get into this expedition racing. And I was going to dedicate myself to that and just see where that took me. And in January of 2004, I moved to Whistler with one of my best friends, a guy named Mark Fearman, and we signed up for this MOMAR race, which I'd never heard of, and we, it, those were like the winning times were four, four and a half hours, and <clears throat> we started down this path for the next three years of trying to become expedition race, adventure race finishers, and we signed up for Primal Quest Utah in 2006. It was that year, one, like the most renowned, hardest adventure race in the world. By that point, Eco Challenge was dead, so you couldn't just do Eco Challenge. And we showed up with the most inexperienced, youngest team in the race. And they have cutoffs along the course, like every race does. And we missed literally the last cutoff in the entire race on day nine. And we rolled across the finish line after 10 days, but unofficial finishers. We were 34th 
33 people finished the full course. We were the first non-finisher, but there was a lot to learn through this. So a lot of stuff happened out there that, that uh, put us in that. So then we ended up flying to um, Northern British Columbia, Haida Gwaii, and we did Raid the North Extreme. And we were doing fantastic there, um, but we punctured our inflatable kayak and it took six hours to, to um, fix the punctured boat. We had to basically patch the boat up to use it again. And when we launched, we were launching on the ocean at night instead of in the day. And my teammate went hypothermic and we ended up with a boat rescue and had to make a fire on the beach to kind of keep them alive. And it was a pretty dramatic thing, but like we were now 0 for 2. And then we flew to uh, Baja, Mexico. And <clears throat> we launched into an expedition race in a, a storm that should have canceled the race. And we found ourselves in 25 foot, like eight meter, seven meter swells um on the ocean and the, the your teammate could be literally like two meters away but if they were on the other side of the swell you couldn't see them um i got violently seasick i'm literally like puke right paddle left puke left paddle right <laughs> and then we lost our boat um and had to swim for our lives literally um and me and a teammate barely made it out in on this rocky shore and we were very fortunate for how it played out and these locals ran down and they said we were really impressed with your survival plan. And we were like, <laughs> we were, we're really impressed. We're still, still okay, still alive. And they said, did you notice all of the crosses on the rocks? And I was like, no, didn't notice anything. And they said, someone dies in this water every year. And that's the worst water we've seen in like eight years. Um, <clears throat> so we were now over three. And in 2007, I flew to Australia for something called XPD. It was 750 kilometers long. It was the world championships that year. There were like 80 teams from around the world. And I was just praying to anything that would listen to me. Like, just let me finish this race. Just let me have this. I'm, I'm going broke. I don't know how much more I can do. <laughs> and through the years of training for these expedition races, I fell in love with running. So I had said, if I can finish this race, I will sell my kayak and my mountain bike tomorrow Running is what's for me. I don't want to die in the ocean. Mountain biking is cool, but I find running to be the thing that speaks to me the most. And we ended up finishing 15th overall. Uh, I want to say it was like five days or something. And I flew back to Canada. That was in, I want to say, August, late, late August. And by September, my mountain bike and my kayak were for sale. And in 2008, I started into running and long distance running only. And I ran my first ever 100 mile training week. And I signed up for a hundred mile race in August of 2008 that happened in Squamish called Stormy, which was the origin story for the Squamish 50. And I won my first ever hundred mile race. And I knew at that point that I had found the thing that was most meaningful to me. Wow. Oh my wow. goodness. <laughs> That's unbelievable, Gary. That How long is... have I been talking for? Like five minutes? <laughs> yes, it's, it, was, it was about a five minutes. Sorry, that was a windy way of kind of getting us no, that... to 2008. But that... like I said, I haven't had a chance to really dive into all no, the details. No, that yeah, was incredible, that's, that's Gary. Like, that's what got me into the sport. Yeah, so, so cool. I mean, I just think back to kind of when you when you first started telling the story and you're saying, you know, I was, I was a 12-year-old kid and I looked at my mom and said, I want to travel the world and like have this adventure. And then you 
whether it felt like by design or default or by some sort of haphazard accident, like you made it happen. And like, I'm sure, you know, even in, in the time that you were telling that story, like how many amazing, you know, one-off kind of stories or adventures were left unsaid, right? On those travel, <laughs> a year of travel on the bike through, through Central America. <laughs> like I can only imagine, but it's so, so interesting how all of these experiences like led you to find the thing that you like really wanted to lean into in life. It's just, it's so cool. And what a story to be able to, to tell. Like that was amazing. And I, I really like, truly, I, I think the, the journey is what has made it so, so special because it's really given me um, the ability to appreciate exactly where I am and, and how I got here. And, and again, when I started into this, when I moved to BC, when I, when I came back, like I knew conclusively at that point, like, this is where I want to live. This is where I want my life to be. And, and there was just a, a real clarity that I had brought back with me from those years of really exploring and trying to, to figure out who I was and what I wanted. Yeah. So cool. And then you, so you, you won. That was, that was the first 100 mile race you'd ever participated in. There were 35 starters. It wasn't like it was a super deep race. There were okay. some good runners in there that had more experience than myself, but yes, I did win my first. Actually, I, 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 I ran 1741, which is still ends up being one of my fastest hundred milers. So I had a, I had a very good day for a, for a newbie that had no idea what he was doing. <laughs> that was but amazing. Funnily, um, like it was a, it's a small town race, you know, again, there were only 35 starters. The aid stations were, were kind of, um, um, Peasley, if you will. And I got through 50 miles or 55 miles and everything was going perfectly according to plan. And then my stomach went south and I, I couldn't fuel. And I knew the only way you're going to get to the finish line is fuel. And the only thing that was working for me was Coca-Cola, watermelon and water. So I literally fueled 45 miles of the hundred miler, my first hundred on just that Coca-Cola, <laughs> watermelon and Coke. And I got to the finish line. My buddy, Tom Craig was there. He was congratulating me. He said, you kind of look green. Are you going to be okay? <laughs> and uh, I had consumed literally somewhere in the range of like five or six liters of Coca-Cola to get through the back half of that race. <laughs> Thankfully, <laughs> I've learned enough since then to not have to replicate that. <laughs> That's good. It's the water- <laughs> you, you had the watermelon sugar high before Harry Styles. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've got so many uh, questions, Gary, just from, from your stories. And, and again, so, so appreciative and grateful that, um, you know, we got to, got to hear this tale. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you, if you got to see us the whole time, but we were literally grinning from ear to ear the whole time, just taking in your, your adventure. Uh, so what- we're on a zoom call right now and I really like to pace and move when I'm talking. So I pacing around the room and every now and then I would have a glance at the video, which <laughs> is on the table here. And I could see that but yeah, it was like, okay, good. This is, this is going well. <laughs> oh yeah. Loving it. So, so one, one theme that I found consistent through that, um, through that adventure, through that time from, you know, Newfoundland to BC was a sense of intuition of, of trusting your gut and, and kind of going for it. Can you, can you speak to what intuition means to you? Yeah, that's, that's very interesting because I, it's, you know, you've kind of hit the nail on the head because I left home at a young age. And again, I didn't have much of a safety blanket. And I, I would, I would agree with what you say. Like, yeah, cause I look back and some of the stories I tell and it's like, I didn't understand why my parents were so worried about me cycling through Central America pre-social media age where they literally heard from me once every seven or 10 days. <laughs> um, I can't, they, they said they didn't sleep for a year. And now as a father, I believe everything they said. 
but um yeah i absolutely agree like i i don't know why or how or where that was developed or where the confidence in that came from but certainly i think from leaving home as a teenager and then needing to kind of forge your way in the world i know a few skill sets got developed and, and one of them especially was learning to read people mm. um and 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 that was really applied in Central America because when there's there's a, not a common language to be spoken, you're really keying off of subtle subtleties in the in the in the individual human behavior as to like is this is this a person that I can trust even though we can we can only you know sparsely communicate kind of thing versus like what what might this person's intentions be right now so yeah I don't know if gifted or developed but certainly intuition and and trusting my intuition has played a huge role in my my um, whether substantiated or not confidence in, in being able to pursue these things. Hmm. You've got a good intuition. You know, interestingly, yeah, sorry to cut you off. It's yeah, yes. just something else came to mind there, but, um, and it's actually quite, um, relevant right now, but in, in 2007, before I went to Australia, um, for <clears throat> the expedition adventure race, XPD, I had decided that I was going to run the West coast trail and the Juan de Fuca trail back to back. And there were some people at that time in 2007 that were talking about doing it. And it was 130 kilometers long. And it was literally twice the distance that I'd ever run before in my life. And excuse me, for some reason, I thought this is good training for your expedition race. If you can run this 130 kilometer route, then you can, you're prepared to finish your expedition race that you're going to do here. Um, so, and you know, you, someone who's acutely or listening, paying attention right now might be like, well, you said you ran your first ever hundred mile training week. And this is true that week I didn't run leading into it. So I ran 80 miles that week for 130. Um, and then the next year was my first official hundred mile training week. But anyways, the, um, I made up this plan of like, okay, so here's how it's going to go. Here's where I'm going to be. Here's how the timing is going to break down. And I headed off onto the West coast trail and then you get a ferry across the water and then you run the Juan de Fuca. And I got to 100 kilometers in on a beach on the Juan de Fuca I forget which beach it was specifically. And literally the document that I had created for myself, and I'm running twice as far as I ever had before. I'd never run more than, than 63, 65 kilometers. And I was on the beach at 100K within three minutes of my predicted time. And wow. it was just, <laughs> I, I, I clearly had a, a relatively strong grasp over who I was and what I could do. I ended up running the distance in 23 hours and 41 minutes, if I remember correctly. And then I got an email from someone not, not a month ago saying, I didn't even realize that the, the time still stands and they're going for the, the record. Um, so maybe I'll get a notification at some point here that someone is better at the record. But, but yeah, I, I even, even early on was my wife has always, um, she gets a kick out of like how, numbers and, and, and planning and how, um, how close I can be on a lot of these things. She thinks it's, uh, is it, she gets a kick out of just being like, well, of course that's what happened. That's what you said you were going to do. <laughs> <laughs> that's wild. Um, one other, one other question that kind of came up just listening through these, these amazing tales, uh, was the idea of, of start line versus finish line. I think so many of us have like a, a finish line in mind of, the destination that we want to find and we can sometimes miss the journey and the start line for me is full of opportunity and possibility. Um, can you, can you speak to start lines versus finish lines? Yeah, I, I think with experience, you really do start to appreciate that, you know, the, the journey is, is what it's all about. And 
I coach runner, I coach athletes. Um, so I have a, a, an event business and a coaching business. And it's something I really try to instill in people is just to believe in the process and, and, um, and let it be a, a process based outcome and, and know that like you will, you will look back on these things and really appreciate the journey that brought you there. And, and I think picking goals and whether it's a running goal or anything else in life are really important for us to find purpose and to dedicate ourselves towards doing something. Um, but it is, it is the steps that we put in place to allow us to accomplish that goal that end up being the most meaningful things that we look back upon. Hmm. In your, uh, in your doc, the big chill, which, you know, if people haven't seen it, uh, they can, they can check it out on your YouTube channel. It's, it's awesome. Uh, definitely, definitely worth the watch, but you have this great line where you say, um, you kind of realize that you were just enjoying that there wasn't like the competition of time. Like you, you know, as you had said earlier, like you knew you, you'd had set the, set the line and knew you wanted to complete it roughly around, uh, you know, the, what what would it be like 35, 40 hour mark. Right. But Mm -hmm. it wasn't like a race that you were setting out to beat others or anything. And that you'd mentioned enjoying just establishing a line and then completing the distance no matter what. And I really love that. And I think now hearing that it like speaks to that sense of adventure, but that you, that you have, do you see like more of these types of adventure runs in your future rather than like competing for time or competing against other people or yourself, but rather like setting something that maybe hasn't been done before or just going with intent with the intention of doing the journey rather Mm -hmm. than like making it to the end. Yeah. You know, something I've really, um, come to terms with or like learned about myself over the years is, you know, it's the aesthetic of the the project and, and also the aesthetic of the terrain. And, um, I, like most people, I think I'm really inspired by just being in beautiful landscapes. And certainly here in BC, we're, we're some of the most fortunate people in the world to live in this country, in this province. And we're just flushed with endless opportunity to, to do stuff like where I just created a hundred mile run that was basically out my front door that had 30,000 feet of climbing and went over six mountain passes and, and ended up being one of the most beautiful hundred milers that I've ever run. Like I, I drove less than 20 minutes to start this thing and I could have started from my front door if I really wanted to. But um, yeah, I think as I'm, I see this with people as they kind of mature as runners or athletes or uh, you, you put less stock in the result and the time and you put more stock in the journey and the reward of just being able to do it And I mean, I don't want to pretend that I'm a decrepit at 45 years old, but Mm -hmm. I I mean, undoubtedly, uh, I've come to terms with the fact that my fastest days are behind me and I can still, I think, get quite fit and compete in a limited number of events. But, you know, 10 years ago, I was racing an ultra five or six times a year and doing well at all of them. And now it's very much just kind of specializing into one or two where you might want to try to, to run a quick time. So, um, yeah, I, absolutely am am in the the process of like yeah what's the next thing that's going to speak to me and where in the world is that going to happen and now the travel is starting to open up again i had a strong connection to wanting to do some some running in the british fells a couple of years ago and it didn't materialize and now that might be possible um the only race honestly that really to me feels like it still needs to be done by me and to the highest level i'm competent or capable of doing is the hard rock hundred miler in Colorado. I've been down three times. I've paced for the race. I know the route. 
And unfortunately, it's just a next to impossible lottery to get into. And I've never been drawn in the lottery. And I've never had an opportunity to, to run the race. And this race goes over 14,000 feet. It's uh, over 30,000 feet of climbing and descent. Most of the races run above 10,000. Um, but most importantly, it is just some of the most, the San Juan Mountains of Colorado are some of the most gorgeous, glorious terrain you could ever hope to run in. So that's the inspiration. And that's, that's really, I, I don't have, I still have the competitive spirit. I always will. I still get angry if I lose a card game uh, to my wife or now even my son. And uh, I'll always have the competitive spirit and always want to get the most out of myself. Mm-hmm. But it's starting to transition away from want, feeling a need to like, to better someone else versus the need for me is constantly. And there's um, someone in the, in the scene named Brendan Leonard, who has a website called semirad.com and fantastic speaker wrote a book called I hate running and you can too. Wonderful person. And his quote really resonated with me a few years ago when he was presenting in North Vancouver. And it was along the lines of like, I'm just competing against myself to be a less shitty version of myself. Yeah. And, and that's where I find myself is I'm 45 years old and my, true goal is to try to get outside every day and to try to instill a sense of adventure and spirit in my son and our family, but it's to try to stay as healthy and as fit as I possibly can. And then when I line up for a race, so I do have a couple of races on the calendar here. In a few weeks, I'll be in Alberta for a sky running race called Meet the Minotaur, which is 35 kilometers with 3000 meters. It's up and down two massive mountains. And a huge stout field of runners. And I think my best case scenario is I might finish top 20. I don't think I could crack top 10 just looking at the field. And I'm totally fine with that because it's a beautiful mountain run. And I'm really excited to go do that race and to push myself as hard as I possibly can that day and to really see where that puts me. And then I think most importantly, it just it kind of makes me feel alive um, when you're really pushing yourself as hard as you can. That's awesome. This, the, the, the adventurer may, may change and age and, you know, injuries, whatever, what have you, but the, the desire for adventure will never, will never fully subside. Right. Not at all. I mean, yeah, more than anything now. And I, um, and I just feel incredibly fortunate that I've, I've carved out this life, um, happily married, lovely child live in Chilliwack, which is beautiful. And, and have the opportunity, the ability on a daily basis to free up an hour of my day, um, sometimes more, to get out and, and do something. And I think it's really important for physical and also mental health. And, and, and again, helps me present the best version of myself to my family and the world. Yeah. Has running evolved from, you know, competition, whether external or internal, to um, being just that, the best version of yourself, uh, a sense of meditation, uh, a, a space to be creative and, and find yourself? Has, has that kind of relationship with running evolved since you first started on your first, uh, you know, Squamish, Squamish 50 or Squamish 100? Yeah, yeah. And I would say that's always been there. But I think the the real thing is over the years, you kind of learn to forgive yourself a little bit for the, uh, the, the day, the off days that you have, or the result that wasn't quite what you expected it to be. And those things in the moment, you know, in 2013, I had my best running year ever and set some course records and, and won some, some races and was near the front and some others. And I, I DNF'd at, um, 
at Ultra Trail Mont Blanc UTMB in August. And, you know, looking back on it, it was one bad race in a, in a year of the best races of my life. And I let it affect me for far too long. Hmm. And, um, and those, those are things that you learn over time is like to be a little bit more forgiving of yourself and to, to not lose sight of, um, being able to appreciate the fact that you can even do these things to the level that you want to do them at. Mm. So you've definitely run some, uh, notable races, both local and abroad, and maybe one of the most notable for people who are like outside of kind of the running and trail running community is the Barkley marathons, largely, largely (laughs) thanks to the, the, um, celebrity Lazarus Lake and the, the Netflix doc or the documentary that came out a, a number of years ago now that really brought people's attention and awareness to this very unique version of an ultra race. And then of course, for you, uh, uh, a multiple, uh, time over a competitor or runner of the Barclays and your own, again, like amazing YouTube, uh, documentary that is, is available on your channel. You can see um, where dreams go to die, which is just a wonderful name for that for that video. But where it kind of tells your story, which is which is so well done. But can we talk a little bit about that experience from maybe, you know, what what was the decision moment to apply for for such a wild event um, to how you felt like receiving the condolence letter that you were actually in? And, and yeah. maybe some of the pieces of the run. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. And then, and then maybe we can go back. Um, I'm just going to jump on Dean's wagon here and ask a few more things because I'd love to go back to the, the campfire here and just kind of let you, let you <laughs> roll. Um, just adding to that, how you first found out about the Barclays, um, kind of that first experience, like discovering what it was. And then maybe from there, just like, let's go to the campfire again and, and tell us like, a day, a loop, an experience at the Barclays that we can all kind of hang on to and, and let resonate within, with our, within our own souls. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, we can't, uh, can't glaze over the, the race that uh, set me much more on the world stage in the end. Um, Where Dreams Go to Die uh, was actually the, the, so Laz labels the race years and puts um, a something on the bib. And the <sighs> bib for 2017 said, Where Dreams Go to Die. So that's where the title of the movie came from. Nice. It's on Ethan Newberry's YouTube channel. Oh, I'm sorry, very yeah. fortunate that uh, Ethan is a magnificent filmmaker and just created uh, a wonderful timepiece for, for me and my family. And, um, and uh, yeah, to be able to really track my experiences there over a couple of years. But um, to the first question there, like when, where, how? Uh, so I had I talked in detail there a little bit about the expedition racing, and turns out in the expedition racing world, they like to talk about the hardest things in the world. And uh, I had learned about the Barkley Marathons early on. I don't recall exactly when or or who, but it came up in conversation in those in the earlier years there. Um, and then. I started getting interest in it in 2008 or 2009. So once I started into the hundreds, relatively early on. Um, and I was planning to apply to the Barkley in 2010 uh, with the hopes of maybe lining up in 2011. And uh, in 2010, I unfortunately ended up, or sorry, at the end of 2010 and into 11. So I Jones fractured uh, my foot, which is a, a, a fracture on your fifth metatarsal 
And the air quotes Jones fracture is one of the worst fractures a runner can sustain because it gets no blood flow and recovery is incredibly complex. So I Jones fractured my foot, was in a boot on non-weight-bearing crutches for what ended up being four and a half months. I got out of crutches, out of, off, out of the boot, off crutches, was given the green light, was signed up for UTMB that year, 2011. Um, had obviously like not applied to Barkley because I was injured. And then in May of that year, just uh, I think I got out of my boot in January. And then three months later, I refractured on the exact same line and was in a, a non-weight-bearing cast on crutches for another four, four and a half months. Um, so in under a calendar year, I was on crutches for nine months. And it was obviously like a really challenging point in my life. And, and it introduced a lot of uncertainty about my body and my foot and the ability to do what I do, which was really hammer hard on technical terrain, especially the descents. I was told eventually that like that might not come back depending on how you heal. Thankfully, um, got on a program through a friend of mine, Luke Nelson, who took me through like a six month build to go from zero to 10 kilometers. Uh, really, really painfully slow process, but he guaranteed me that if I followed this, I'd get back to hundred um, percent. I did. And then it took me another year, a uh, couple of years to get the experience and confidence to know that I was past this and then to get excited about possibly the Barkley marathons again. And then in 2015, I was like, this is it. It has to happen because at the time I had seen that there was a documentary coming out um, called the race that eats its young, fantastic documentary. But I recognized you, you better do this now because this race is going to start to blow up. Like that's a pretty big documentary and it's still, uh, an unknown race, but it won't be for long. So in 2015, I applied and in 2016, I was drawn onto the wait list, I think eighth. And then I officially got into the race on February 29th. So I'll always remember I was out for a run on a leap year and I got home and there's a letter of condolence from Lazarus Lake and just a <laughs> hilarious scripture about get your affairs in order. What are you thinking? If you were a smart person, you would pull out from this race. You have you know, 24 hours to make the right decision and, and forego this entry. Um, and little did I know how accurate all of this would end up being in the end. Um, so, um, so yeah, I showed up in 2016 and my son was not even a year old and we flew to Tennessee and camped. And Jared Campbell was someone in the scene who I knew. Uh, we talked on the phone a couple of times, but I'd never run with. And he basically was like, yeah, I'll do the Barkley. And, you know, whoever can hang is whoever I'll work with. And it worked out really well that I, I got to learn from the master, the only three-time finisher of the race. And we spent four incredible laps together and became um, lifelong friends from it. And we've, for the last two years, been trying to get together for a family um a family camping trip or something. And we're hopefully going to make that happen at the end of this year. But um, the race, so, you know, being in camp is just, there is so much anxiety that you can just taste it. You can cut it with a knife and it's because no other race in the world doesn't tell you what time they're going to start. (laughs) And right. Like it, and it's just torture. It's absolute torture. So it can start anywhere from midnight on the Friday to noon on the Saturday when they were happening on a, on a weekend, they've gone to midweek a little bit here, but, um, and you get a one hour notice, they blow a conch. So you go to your campground and you try to shut down at like five or six o'clock. Um, and it's impossible. And I remember that night, like there were barking dogs, a car alarm went off. It was just like, 
you're just laying there, just kind of like put me out of my misery and blow <laughs> the damn conk already and let's get the show on the road. And you eventually fall asleep for a second and then, and then boom, the, the conk goes off. And I think that, that year in particular, we didn't start until daylight. So nobody has slept. You know, other than Jared, who's just like zen about everything and had already finished a couple of times at that point. So um, you're already behind the eight ball so much. Like we started on Saturday morning and the last real sleep I had was on was on Thursday night. And then you've got to go for 60 hours. So it's one of the really additional complexities with that race that doesn't really get identified. Um, but yeah, the race starts, you light the cigarettes, you start from the yellow gate, you start up the slope and, and it's this switchback climb. And those first few minutes are magical because you've been training literally for months on end, some people for years, and you, 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 there's so much anxiety. You don't know when everything is going to go. And then once it finally starts, you're like, oh, here we are. Okay, this is what I trained to do. We're running. Everything is making sense again. We're moving. And that climb feels... Um, it feels all at once effortless and a, a pleasant reminder that like you're climbing a couple of thousand feet right off the hop. And, uh, and then you head towards book one and it's kind of nonchalant. There's a lead group at that point. It's like nine people, but then you realize if you, when you, you have to grab your page out of the book to correlate with your bib and you realize when nine people are doing this, the first person is going to be 45 seconds gone. So as you get closer to the book, there's a, an awakening of like, well, okay, there's no more nonchalantness here. Like you got to get to that book in the, in the first couple of people, or you're going to get dropped. And, you know, Jared goes right to the book and I was right there with a, a small group and our group of nine went to, to five at the book. And then you drop down your first slope and it is the wake up call of holy shit. We're <laughs> dropping down and off trail two and a half thousand foot descent that is littered with like down trees and leaves and foliage and mud and rocks. And you are hanging on for dear life as you're blazing down this thing. And, and in my head, I remember thinking, what the hell is going on? This is not sustainable. Like this is race pace and we're an hour into 60 hours. And what happens is you end up having to go out hard and peel away the the fat and peel away the the group until it's just kind of pared down to that lead group that want to work together. And yeah, it was like, it was go time and a wake up call going down that first descent into book two. And then I think by the time we were at book three that year, we were already down to three people. Um, and, and, you know, the 13 books has been the average I've had over the years. Um, and as you make your way through the course, you know, your first lap kind of has to be in a nine hour time frame. Um, and by the time you get through that first lap, there's huge celebration and victory of like, okay, that's it. We've done a lap at the park. We like, you know, you're one fifth of the way there, but then you come into camp and you've been going for nine hours, if not 10 plus, and you have eight minutes max. Like, I think we took 10 and Jared was like, yeah, we, we shouldn't, but sure. Like I'd like, he's like, I like to be out of here in like three to five. So you've been out there for 10 to 10 to 12, depending on the person. And then you come into camp and you have five minutes to, and you're, you're covered in mud. You've got dirt everywhere. You're bleeding for sure on your legs. You're out of water. You're, you've got 
You've got the, the four things you refuse to eat, even though you knew, you know, you should have you, the weather has changed four times and you've got five minutes to come in and actually be with your family and get set and ready to go again. And the five minutes feels like four seconds and then you're up and going and it's like, boom, you're in the lap too. And it just, it really starts to peel you apart really quickly because lap two, uh, by this point, you're getting off lap two and you've been out there for 24 hours, basically, uh, thereabouts, and you've you've been moving for all of it. You, you're you not sitting down. You're not stopping. You're not taking a break. You're barely able to fuel because you're you're doing it on the run. And um, and I, I, looking back on the races, you know, they call a fun run three laps. <laughs> and I've, I've got three fun runs, and every single one of them end up being the top three hardest hundred milers I've ever run. The fun run at Barkley is harder than any hundred miler I've ever run. And I, I'll say that again, it's harder than any hundred miler I've ever run anywhere, getting through three laps at the Barkley. And then you've got two more to go. So I, I came down into camp with Jared in 2016 and on, on the fun run on loop three. And I was like, I don't understand. I don't I, like the internal dialogue is you're done. And then the next thought is like, you're not done, but this is really scary to be in this place and to not know. I don't know how to keep going. I don't know how to, to keep doing this. And I want to be done and I think I should be done, but I'm not, I can't quit. I can't stop. And yeah, the, the, the descent into camp after lap three with Jared was just rife with this incredible self-doubt as to like, this race is actually truly impossible. Mm. Um, and then we got to take a little break that year. I think we stayed in camp for an hour, got to lay down for the one and only time. And I was having foot issues and my feet got to dry out for a little bit, which was nice. And, and then four lap four ends up being really hard. But when you get through four, there's the elation of knowing you've only got one lap to go. And, and a lot of times historically, you know, people run a faster fifth than fourth. And a lot of times historically they need to, because it's the only way you can finish. And just think about that, the the magnitude of needing to come into camp after, you know, we'll call it 80 miles, even though uh, it's likely 25 plus miles a lap, but to come into Barkley after four laps and to be in probably the, the most pain you've ever been in in your life for a running event and to need to do your last lap faster than the one you just came off of is uh, is quite the ask. And Jared really put it in perspective for me because at that point, You've gone days, you've gone a day past your physical breaking point, and every minute is a minute further past your mental breaking point than you thought you could make it. And it, it ends up becoming this distilled existence. And, and it ends up being a really special place because in, in life, you just don't find yourself there. And I've only found myself there in the Barkley twice, not the third time, because I was cut after I missed the, cut, the cutoff for four, twice at the Barkley and a little bit in some expedition racing where you are so far gone physically and mentally that nothing else in the world matters. And I, it was almost like you find this moment of perfection where all of the, all of the, the issues we have in being human, all of the doubt, all of the ego, all of the things that we carry around with us on a day-to-day -day basis just kind of disappear. 
and you're just in this, this space of all at once, it feels like perfection and, and fully flawed, but there's zero judgment. And it's, it's a space you almost wish you could live in mm. without all of the misery and pain of having to get there. But it's a special place to be because you do have to literally work um, harder than you've ever worked before just to find yourself in this space where you feel this like fleeting sense of connecting with something greater than yourself. And I don't know, it's probably the same as doing an LSD trip for all I know, but (laughs) you, you really, it is a magical experience and it's really incredible to me that you can find this moment of purity and connection when every inch of your body and mind is just screaming at you to stop. Mm. I think you, yeah, that's so awesome. Gary, thanks for, thanks for sharing that and kind of taking us, taking us on some of the, some of the loop with you. I mean, (laughs) I think for, for pretty much all of us, it's just, we'll, we'll experience it through the videos and, you know, uh, stories like this rather than actually setting foot, setting foot there. But, um, I think you just started to touch on, on something that I'd love to just ask a little bit, uh, further. You, you wrote, um, in one of your Instagram posts, thank you, Barkley, for all you've given me. I did something special out there. Uh, and I'll always cherish that experience and those memories. And I mean, you were just saying that, but thank you for all you've given me. Um, what is it that the Barclays gave you? Like you could say uniquely or, or a new perspective or perhaps like reinforcing something within yourself, but what is it that it gave you? I mean, first and foremost, it gave me two of two of the top individuals, friends that I ever could have hoped to connect with in Jared Campbell and John Kelly. Yeah. Um, the bonds that we forged each through four laps at the Barkley will stand the test of time. And I have regular communication, so semi-regular with both of them. And, and each of us independently are really looking and striving to, to connect um, when we can. And um, the sense of being a part of something at the Barkley, even that community that shows up annually and is in the, in the campground around the, the, the campfire is, is really a special thing to be a part of. Um, it, it might sound ironic to say confidence, uh, given that it was it kind of tore me down and didn't allow me to attain my ultimate goal there, but just the confidence that you take away from not quitting, you know, like that's the one thing I can say conclusively definitively about that race is I spent six years of my life, five in particular, working as hard as I could to get to the start line. I got to the start line three times. I missed once with an injury. I missed once with the pandemic, uh, twice kind of really, but Hmm. um, I never quit. And and to find yourself in a space in life where you are being challenged um, in every grain of your being to quit on something and and you don't... um, there's a, there's, that's empowering and that's, it's, it's special. And, you know, I, I said this early on when I got it, uh, got into expedition racing, I said this, you know, to my circle at the time, like what attracted me to expedition racing was that I wanted to know what my breaking point was. I said, I wanted to be brought to my knees to be crippled with like disbelief and doubt and to find a way to, <clears throat> to stand back up and keep moving. And, and Barkley gave me that. It gave me that every year. And, um, there's, there's just not a lot of places in life that you can, you can challenge yourself that way and find that. And yeah, I, it's not easy to move on from it, but it is the right decision. And I am, I am, um, sound with that and happy with that. And, but 
it, it, yeah, it gave me uh, an incredible level of confidence with um, who I am and what I can do and, and how special and fortunate I am to be able to do the things that I do. Um, and then, you know, finally, it, it also, with the, how lucky I was to have Ethan Newberry as a good friend who was able to document things and then create this documentary and it forgets to, for it to get to the uptake that it did, hmm. it presented, and I'll, I'll preface this by saying, like, I would still go back and trade everything to finish the race and to have, a, have attained that. But if I look back on it, and I mean, I made it to lap five halfway through in the first year. Um, if I had been a one and done, I would have moved on to other things and my athletic career would have been as fulfilling as, as I, I would have made it. And, um, but I wouldn't have been catapulted into the limelight as much as I was by my non-finish in 2017. Hmm. And with that, there's, there's a, a host of, of benefits that have come with it. I mean, I was literally in Chicago on the weekend, um, at a run show conference, uh, and they reached out to me and flew me down to speak to some people. And that would, that wouldn't have happened if, if where dreams go to die didn't exist. And the opportunities that have arisen simply from being a part of a viral moment in our sport where there aren't a lot of viral moments. Um, I can't deny, uh, that those benefits also exist. And even though I would, I would trade the outcome, um, I would also have to trade those benefits along with it. Yeah. I can imagine like Zach and I are both runners and, you know, competitive people and, you know, for sure, like you, we want to finish and we want to do our best and give it our all and, and have that result to show for it. But I, you know, we've had other people on the podcast before who are ultra runners or just knowing them and speaking with them. And there's that sense of like, oh man, I DNF'd this run. And I was like, yeah, but you still ran like 80 miles. Like through <laughs> there, it's like such an accomplishment. But I, I understand both sides because me as like a fan and, you know, someone who just like marvels at the human ability um, to, to, to do these feats is like celebrating any of the accomplishment. But on the flip side, it's like as a competitor, I also know like, damn it, I wanted to finish, right? But, but I love mm -hmm. how you have the perspective of seeing, seeing what's good even in the midst of, you know, like you said, you would trade it for the outcome that you, you would rather have, which is, is getting all the way through. But um, yeah, um, one of the things you'd said about in the, in the lead up was, uh, you know, your training and then obviously the su suffering a significant injury on your foot and then doing the healing and then, and then having it be re-injured. Um, again, like as a runner, I, I understand how frustrating it can be dealing with injuries. I've had a, a ruptured Achilles and then other, yeah. you know, much less uh, acute and significant injuries, but they sideline you for a time. And I'm just wondering, like, as someone who is, you know, so, so accomplished and your achievements and your running is like so central to your life. Uh, how did you cope? How did you cope with not running? Did you try other things? Was it mentally tough? Like what, what did life look like for you when you couldn't just put on the shoes and go outside for, for a run? That's, an, uh, that's a really, uh, a really, um, observant question on your part that I appreciate very much. And it, it's funny because I kind of take this for granted. It's been a long time since I've, I've talked about this and, and it, it takes me back. Um, so a couple of things, I mean, I met my wife while I was on crutches oh, wow. and we, st we started dating at that period in time and, uh, it gave us a different foundation than we would have had otherwise. And, um, she's an ultra runner as well. My wife is, we, we joke serious. She's the runner in the family. She's done over 100 races of marathon distance and above. 
she once ran 35 marathons in a calendar year, thankfully oh. before I knew her, but um, wow. the, uh, we met each other at the right point in our lives, the right time in our lives. And because I was sidelined and I was on crutches, it also allowed, it, I was, you know, <clears throat> I wasn't taking off um, on these long runs and she was incredibly supportive and helpful uh, to me in that period. But <clears throat> I was forced at that point to deal what I've called my mortality as a runner hmm. because I was being confronted with the fact that it might be done. Like there were no guarantees uh, that I was going to get back to where I was. I had um, broken my foot twice. I refused to get surgery because there was plenty of documentation online um, showing that if you get a pin in that part of your foot and it, and anything goes wrong, it's permanent pain that doesn't allow you to flex your foot properly and to have a running career. But they told me that if it didn't heal the second time, I needed a pin. There was no other way around it. Um, so when I was being confronted with my mortality as a runner, I want, I realized that benefit, fortunately so, I never got to a point where I was actually making a living off of running. Um, so I've had great sponsorship and support over the years. I've gotten a fleeting amount of money. I think the entire money I've received in my entire career as an ultra runner uh, wouldn't even equate like one annual salary kind of thing, but, <laughs> but all of the support over the years I've, I've massively appreciated, but sometimes people think there's more, there's more support in this sport than there, there certainly has been historically. So what I realized though, and again, fortunately, so my life wasn't actually being a, a professional athlete. I consider myself semi-professional because I've never been paid a salary to do this. Um, I wanted to be in this sport no matter what. And I realized that when I was being confronted with the possibility that I might not be a runner or an elite runner or someone that could connect with people in that regard, that I needed to find a way to still have this be a part of me and my life. And that is literally the birth of me as a race director. And I was working at a sushi restaurant um, when I got off of crutches um, paying bills. And we started up this Coast Mountain Trail running, then Coast Mountain Trail series with three races. We lost money on every single race for two and a half years. My business partner wanted to pull the plug. We had a very serious conversation. I convinced him to just give it one more month. And, um, and one month later at that race in the third year, everything started to click. I believed in what we had created and knew that we just needed a bit more time. And every race from that point in year three to the current has seen an increase in registration and numbers. And um, we were ever so close to, to not being present today. And, and again, <clears throat> I had, I had the support of my wife while I was doing this and remember having the conversation of, I had managed a run store. I had worked at Fairmont hotels for five years. I was a bellman at one point. Like I had, those were my safety net options. You know, I could fall back and do those things. And I enjoyed each of those points in my life where I've worked in those fields. Um, but I wanted this, I wanted to work for myself. I've always been an entrepreneurial spirit. Um, I, so when, uh, when I was, when I was a kid in Newfoundland, um, I actually used to make like scratch tickets and would put like silver crayon over them and then sell them in the neighborhood and make money off of creating scratch tickets, um, and give away like small prizes that I had. So I was, I was making money and then I had lemonade stands. And, um, when I was, <clears throat> when I was, 14 years old it was like the boom of the hockey card era and I had this massive hockey card collection and I decided I was going to cash in because I wanted a dirt bike so I started going to flea markets on the weekends on Sundays in Newfoundland you paid ten dollars you got a table you could sell your goods 
and I'd walk around as a, I guess I was 13 at the time, and I'd walk around and see what the other, the actual adults were doing with their hockey cards. And I would undersell, undercut all of them because I just <laughs> wanted to move this stuff. And they filed a complaint against me. And like the head of the flea market came up to see and see if she could sanction me. And um, she's like, no, he's not doing anything wrong. He's just selling his hockey cards. And every week I would go home with, you know, 100 or $200 in hockey card sales. And then I eventually bought my, my first dirt bike off of my hockey card sales. So anyways, <laughs> long way of saying like, I always wanted to work for myself. It was always a desire to have something for myself. And I kind of leapt into this with the support of my then girlfriend, now wife, knowing that if things failed, that's what I was going to fall back on in the end. And um, yeah, so my mortality as a runner from being injured kind of led me down this path of realizing that even if I couldn't run, I needed to be a part of this community because mm. it was far too meaningful to me. Wow. It's hard to be it's hard to be grateful for your injury, but I'm grateful that it birthed, you know, you as a race director because the 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 positive impact of the races you've created and the amount of people I think that have been exposed to trail running and, you know, just getting outdoors here in our own backyard has been incredible. So, I wish that it would have come out in a different way, but I think that it's really awesome and again, I just like your kind of ingrained positivity to 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 make to make lemons so to speak from a from a crappy <laughs> situation is well, is really in cool. Well, I feel incredibly fortunate I did recover 100%. I went on to have my best running years after that injury, so much easier to look back on it and um and feel like it was a it was a, a beneficial experience for me. Yeah. Gary, through all these these stories you've shared infinite amount of jobs and I think a lot of young, <laughs> young people specifically you know, they get they get worried and they get stressed that they, they don't know what their purpose is. They don't know what they want to do with their life. And and for, for many, it can be paralyzing. So for, for a source of inspiration, much like all of this conversation has been, uh, I know you shared this with our, with our good friend, Mandy. Um, could you rattle through, you know, the list of jobs you, you went through in, in leading to you starting um, your business as, as a race director? So this is hilarious because you just asked me that question and I thought, oh, crap, I wrote that down on the back of an envelope when I talked to Mandy last year. And I think it's in a drawer here somewhere. So I muted and I was just madly searching and I managed to pull out the list that I made. Oh, that's amazing. Um, oh yeah, my God. So I've actually got the list that I wrote down last year with this. So, um, yeah, here we go. Uh, mostly in order. I think I remembered some after the fact, but um, yeah, gas station attendants, uh, kind of an adult, no an adult novelty store, uh, grocery store, a pot washer, dishwasher, busboy server, a floor manager. I worked in housekeeping in Australia. I mentioned I worked as an extra in a movie. I mentioned I was a taxi driver and a bus driver in Banff, the pipe fitter in Fort St. John, the hot dog sales, the dive master in Roatan, um, uh, doorman and bellman um, at Fairmont in, in Whistler. I got into construction for a little bit. And in Britannia Beach, the mining museum was redone uh, loosely, like 2007. And I, I was the crew that actually like redid all the windows to go back in there. So I was on a construction project for that. I, I uh, worked under some guys helping build a couple of houses for a little bit. I managed a run shop. I was slinging sushi. I had a babysitting business for a short period. That's a whole other story. And uh, and then worked as a bartender and, and I was a hostel front desk attendant at one or front desk person at one point as well. So um, I ran the gamut. But uh, yeah, I, I think the one thing I really took with me when I left Newfoundland was like, 
I, I didn't have a whole lot of requisite skills or specialties with anything that I did, but I knew how to work hard and I knew how to make money. And I knew that I would always be able to do that no matter where I was in the world. That's incredible. I think for anybody that's, you know, searching, searching to find their own purpose, I think, um, you know, finding your start line and you found so many start lines along the way. And in many cases, didn't know where that finish line was, but they all led from one to the next. And I think, you know, your journey to this point, that's still, you know, a continuing journey kind of shows, get to that start line and trust in the journey. And, uh, you know, we don't know where that's going to take us, but it's going to take us somewhere good. I always said that, you know, I didn't, I, you know, well, I mean, first and foremost, far too often as human nature is to talk ourselves out of things instead of into things. And mm. I taught myself early on to learn to, te- to talk myself into things. It's so easy to sit there and give yourself the list, the laundry list of all the reasons you shouldn't do something, but take the time to just write down the handful of reasons why you should. And most of them come back to just, because it's in your heart, because if you're thinking about doing it, it's something that's meaningful to you. And to deprive yourself of something meaningful to you like that is to not allow yourself to thrive. And I mean, there was another job I had in Quebec where I was working in a sampling operation for a mining operation when they were trying to find gold in the Canadian, or sorry, diamonds in the Canadian shield, um, far down the chain from the person who found diamonds in in, uh, the Northwest Territories for the first time. And I would get dropped off in a helicopter 10 times a day to go grab a sample of, of minerals in a bag and sift through it. And I, the, my takeaway from that experience, other than being in Northern Quebec in untouched landscape, that was really quite beautiful, even if the work was hard, was they would drop me and I would have a map and I'd have to make it a half a kilometer. And I would be in this bush and this brush and I'd step into it and go, it's physically impossible to make it into that area. And I realized that I could never see the 35 steps that were needed to get there, but I could always see the next step. And, you know, I, I, the thing I took away from that trip in Quebec was just like, and this was this was right after or sorry, or right before I injured myself uh, back in 2010, was you don't need to have all the answers. You don't need to have all of the steps in place. You just need the next step. And then when you step into it, you give yourself a chance, an opportunity to then figure out the next step. And it's okay to not know the the all the steps that are needed. Just take the next step and then give yourself the opportunity to, to figure out what needs to happen thereafter. Mm. That's beautiful wisdom. Thank you, Gary. Yeah, that's so good. Well, I know we have to wrap it up in a few minutes. Um, we've got kind of got two two closing questions here to to get ourselves to the finish line of this conversation, and hopefully, it'll be be the first of many more to come. Um, for those listening, if uh, you know they're new to running and they're you know listening to this and they're ready to lace them up, uh, I know you have beautiful, inspiring. Um, kind of pep talks you give at the the beginning of races. Um, what wisdom do you have for for new runners or for people at their first start line for one of your races? What what do you have to share with these folks? Um, so people that are already committed and are showing up for the very first time out there. Um, yeah, I mean, especially with the running side of things, you know, it's uh, the the real advice, and and women are much better at listening and taking advice than men men show up all full of piss and vinegar and they're like, Hey, I've never done this before, but I think that course record looks pretty soft to me. So I'm just going to go for it. Um, so, uh, the real thing uh, is showing up the first time is to, um, to use it as a, as a learning experience to not expect miracles and to, um, to really appreciate the fact that you made it to a start line for the first time. And there's real power in that. And that's the start of your journey into something that, um, that may end up being something much bigger and brighter. Uh, and don't forget to eat. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> so true. So true. What's your favorite? What's your favorite on course snack? Watermelon has never once done me wrong ever. Even from those days at the very first hundred when it's, it just stuck with me that or ice cream, but ice cream is incredibly difficult to get out on course. <laughs> <laughs> true story. Well, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Before, before Dean takes it to our, our closing question, um, just out of my own curiosity, are there any uh, international or local races that you'd like to tackle, whether for just the, the, the pure joy of running them or for competition? Yeah. Yeah. Going back the hard rock hundred miler is right up there. Um, yep. running maybe the Bob Graham round or something along those lines in the UK is still, still on my list. So those are the two, the two that really come to mind. Um, and I absolutely want to continue running hundred milers in the, in the coming years. I've had a little bit of a, a complex last kind of nine months. I found out that I'm, um, hypothyroid. I'm on some medication. I'm doing way better now than I was, uh, in December and January were, were unfortunately really challenging months for me, but I'm figuring that out. And, uh, and right now I, I find myself in a space where I think I can do like five to six hour efforts pretty, pretty, uh, reasonably, but efforts over that seem to take more out of my energy reserves than they have historically. So I'm in the process of trying to figure that out. And, and when I do, uh, I'm, ho- I'm hoping to lean into a hundred miler again, you know, maybe Wasatch, Salt Lake City, be nice to visit Jared and his family or something along those lines. Cool. Amazing. Hey, you got any more, uh, you gonna try to beat beat your your 10k record with Rob Watson? <laughs> so yeah, Rob is fantastic. Um, so my coaching company is Ridgeline Athletics, and Rob is under Mild Marathon. So I'll give him a shout out, but not without shouting myself out too. Yes. And uh, I worked with Rob for 10k time trial training, and then he paced me through it. I ran 34:47. I was uh, my my goal the whole time was to try to break 35. Uh, I thought as a 44 year old, who'd never really done speed work and proper flat running. That was pretty good. Like I was super stoked on that and Rob paced me and it was, you know, like he said, I held my feet to the fire the whole time. And, and the other thing I always say to people is, you know, running doesn't get more impressive or more badass by just covering distance. You can, you can run any distance and, and make it as hard as you want. So don't undermine your accomplishments if you're running shorter distances. I hear that all the time at the finish, you know, oh, I just did a half marathon. And I always stop people and say, no, you didn't just do a half marathon. You ran a freaking half marathon. That's awesome. And, um, and working with Rob was fantastic, but he paced me through it. We ran a sanctioned BC athletics course, but there were no 10 Ks through the pandemic. And, uh, and I just, I was dying the whole way through. And then I asked Rob, like if he even broke a sweat thinking maybe he would have been challenged. And he was like, no, man, that was like, that was a jog in the park for him. (laughs) (laughs) He's very fast. Yeah. Yeah, Oh man. That's so good. Gary, we really, really appreciate you being with us, sharing your, sharing your stories, your time, your energy. Um, it's just been, it's been such a gift, uh, getting to hear from you this way. Normally it is like, you know, those two, two to three minute speeches at the beginning of the start line that we're just like fired up when we hear you and then out we go into the wilderness. But, uh, this was so awesome. We always, uh, we, we always want to end our podcast with this question. So Zach and I created this pod. We called it a little more good. And yeah, we, I love it. we wanted to, uh, we wanted to name it that because that's just what we want to see in the world. We want to do that ourselves and create that in the spaces we take up and, and, and everything that we do. Um, but we love to hear from our guests, like what that phrase or, or statement means to you a little more good. Honestly, a little more good. It tracks back to what I was saying earlier about trying to be the best version of myself on a day-to-day basis and to present the best version of myself into the world. And, you know, just a little more good is just, it doesn't need to be anything of great magnitude, literally just having a pleasant interaction with a stranger on the street 
or helping somebody by holding the door for them. And I, I, I love, I love doing that. And I'm always so impressed when someone does it for me, where you just, you just stand there for three or four seconds and hold the door for somebody. It is amazing what a difference that makes for someone. And we never fully appreciate the struggles that other people are going through and a little more good doing one tiny little thing to just put a smile on someone else's face can really change their day. I love that. And I couldn't agree more. Uh, Gary, Honestly, I'm so grateful for, for those stories and for your time. Uh, as you mentioned, Dean and I were just basking with, uh, you know, ear to ear grins the whole time listening. Uh, that was like, uh, the ultimate runner's summer camp session right there. Um, I, I look forward to, to more start lines at more of your races and, and hopefully we can do this again sometime. Guys, the, like the pleasure, the honor was all mine. I'm so happy that Mandy introduced us. Uh, you guys do fantastic work. Please keep up the great work. Please, please keep putting out the great content. And yeah, thank you for having me. And I look forward to seeing you guys, if not in the races, but out on the trails at some point in the future. You bet. All right. Thank you, sir. Thanks. Gary Robbins, Dina. Wow. Man, oh man. Honestly, like such a fun conversation where he just was able to like tell these stories and share stuff that you know maybe a lot of people who even are familiar with gary um didn't haven't heard before and didn't know like just some of the stuff he shared and the the travels from newfoundland to banff and new zealand and central america like it's just crazy oh yeah finding running and then becoming this incredible endurance athlete and you know yeah it's just uh it's so inspiring and really changing running here locally in in bc uh he's had such an impact through his races through just you know showing what's possible through his own accomplishments uh i feel like he's really elevated the whole running community in bc and beyond and it's just like you know when you sit down with those people and they bring their a-game and just like just felt like a, a running a running fan getting to to sit with one of the our local legends and just hear yeah. hear his own stories it was yeah. so fun so good so be sure to check him out on instagram at gary robbins check out his website as well for some cool resources GaryRobbins.ca. he has a youtube channel uh, we talked about uh, some of the videos that he's in obviously um the the big chill we were talking about it the one featuring chilliwack and uh yeah, just just awesome. Where dreams go to die, the film. That's amazing. That was my introduction to to Gary. You sent that to me when yeah. I first got into running. You're like, yo, watch this. So good. It's like I don't know what this is, but this is unbelievable. <laughs> yes. So it's just really, really enjoyable, and like you see more of his stories uh, and, and personality and accomplishments all through all through that. So yeah, be sure to follow along. Also, you can check out all of the series that he leads just through Coast Mountain Trail. Squamish 50 give them a follow support the runners and also you know if you're ever in the area and there's a race coming through and you want to volunteer be sure to turn up and volunteer um or or be a you know someone someone on the side handing out water or bananas or whatever but it's such a great community and gary is uh really really awesome at orchestrating all of that so really really hope you enjoyed this episode and these kind of campfire stories from this awesome human being yes and before we wrap it up uh shout out to podcast alumni mandy gill yeah for uh introducing us to gary yeah that was awesome mandy's also such an epic epic runner and athlete and yeah. an overall person so thank you mandy for... mandy's so great just the other day i saw her i was i was coming down from the grind and yeah. you know just like did 
did the girls grind, which is whatever. It's an effort, but it's short and sweet. And I'm driving down feeling like, yeah, I did something. Then I see Mandy like <laughs> with her trekking poles, like running up Nancy Greenway. And I was like, oh, cool. She's going to do the grind. And then I see on Strava after it's like a casual, like almost 40K trail run. I'm like, man, what a human being. Yeah. So, so inspiring. I just love it. And yeah, huge thanks to her for, for making the connection to Gary. That's awesome. There we go. Two amazing people. Definitely. All right. Thanks, everybody. Yeah. Peace. 